Welcome to another episode of Rich in Relationship. And today we're talking to Christine Lucan, who is the financial dignity coach. And we're going to talk about our relationship with money post-divorce. And we're going to specifically feature her book, Financial Dignity After Divorce. How are you today, Christine? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for asking. I'm glad to hear it. And, <laughs> you know, the question that I like to ask everybody when they come on the show is how did your heart lead you to do the work that you do? Yes. Well, the short story is I crashed and burned financially in my mid-20s, despite having an accounting degree. And a good part of that reason was because I was in a dysfunctional relationship. Mm -hmm. I like to say I didn't get divorced. I hadn't almost divorced because I almost married the wrong guy. Thankfully, I came to my senses before we walked down the aisle, but it felt in every aspect, except for going to court, like a divorce because we were living together. You know, we had furniture and pets together. Our finances were entangled and it was, you know, it was a very emotional time for me because it was a seven-year relationship. So it, it really did feel like a divorce. Mm -hmm. And money was very central to the implosion of that relationship. I like to say that, um, you know, my ex was not good with money. He was in and out of jobs and even in and out of jail. And I thought if I just loved him enough that he would change. And he did, he got worse. <laughs> so <laughs> at age 26, I found myself with negative bank balances, terrible credit, no money to even leave and get my own apartment. So I had to reach out to my family, which of course, you know, when you've been out on your own as a young adult for several years, coming back home to mom and dad with your tail between your legs is a pretty humbling experience. Yeah, I've been there, done that. <laughs> but it it was a necessary it was a necessary turning point for me and here's the thing i had an accounting degree i had all the head knowledge of what i was supposed to be doing with my money and yet i didn't do it i was working for a multimillion dollar company doing their budget and yet i was bouncing my own checks at home um and not taking good care of my own personal finances in large part because of that dysfunctional relationship. So that is what eventually led me down the path of wanting to help others, especially when they felt like I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I can't make myself do it. I completely understand that. Yeah. That sounds very missional and purposeful yes. and I honor that. So, Thank um, you. You know, I've actually had this conversation with a number of people about the word dignity, which, mm -hmm. you know, which on the face of it, I feel like um, we all think, oh, dignity. Yeah, we know what that means. But I, you know, from having had this conversation a few times, I've come to believe that dignity has a depth of meaning that most of us don't really think about. So if it's OK with you, I'd love to hear when you talk about uh, financial dignity. You know, what, yes. what does that word dignity really mean? And especially in the context of finances. Yeah. Well, sometimes it helps to have a contrast. So to me, the opposite of financial dignity is money shame. It's when we feel bad about our finances, when 
we beat ourselves up over the financial messes that we've gotten ourselves into. And I intimately know that feeling because I had a lot of money shame coming out of that relationship, especially because I was someone who should have known better. And really when I talk about financial dignity, it's that feeling of just waking up in the morning and feeling good and having this lightness around your finances. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a hundred percent out of debt or that you're a millionaire, but what it means is you are actively working on improving your finances and you're seeing tangible progress. Mm -hmm. So it's not being under that weight of stress and shame 24 seven, because I didn't realize until it's probably about a year after that relationship ended. I distinctly remember driving to work one day and the thought struck me, I'm not worried about money. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like I, the, the previous seven years, that was all that I worried about, like constantly. And it was just such a shock. And it, there was such a weight to it. And I didn't realize it until I was on the other side of it. And so having financial dignity really means I feel peaceful and I feel positive about my financial situation. Not that it's perfect, but that we're moving in the right direction and we're being intentional about it. Yeah, we had uh, Professor Everett Worthington, who's a psychologist on the show not that long ago. And he was talking about uh, shame as being, uh, he was, we were talking about shame and guilt and forgiveness was the topic. Yes. And um, he, was, he, was, he made this distinction that Brene Brown is popularized for making, which is, that guilt is when we feel bad about something we've done and shame is when we feel bad about ourselves. Yes, absolutely. I'd uh, lo love to hear more about, um, and well, actually before I ask the question, so I'm just gonna pull out of that, that in some way dignity must have, me, be, must in terms of finance, must have something to do with, all right, we're no longer attaching our sense of self-worth to our finances. Absolutely. Uh, but so, Tell, what does that, how does that, what does that look like in terms of day-to-day -day life? Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, the whole heart of my, my new book, Financial Dignity After Divorce, is really changing your perspective about money, that you have a relationship with it, mm -hmm. and that you start to pay attention to how you're interacting with your money. So if you think about any good relationship that you have, there, there are certain commonalities. If I constantly think and say negative things about someone in my life, I'm not gonna have a good relationship with that person. Mm -hmm. But if I speak positively about that person, if I think positive things about that person, I'm probably gonna have a really great relationship with that person. And the same thing is true for money. And what's very interesting is that money gets entangled with all kinds of other things that have nothing to do with finances, like our self-worth as a person, mm -hmm. right? And it can take some time to even uncover some of these things and to start untangling those two things. Yeah, because money really is a tool. We don't 
really want the money itself. We want what the money will will give us, you know, whether it is basic security, whether it is experiences with our loved ones. I mean, when people say, oh, I want more money, it's not because they want to fill the, this room with $100 bills just to say they have a room with $100 bills, right? It's like that money represents something. It is a tool to get you what you want. So it's almost like we're we're falling in love with the tool rather than what we want the end result to be. Got so it. it's almost and, like we're giving money too much power. Uh-huh. And how does that relate specifically to people uh, in divorce and after divorce? Yeah, well, you know, obviously divorce is a very emotional time. And expensive. And <laughs> yes, and it, it, it is expensive. And, you know, the when they talk about the most traumatic life events that you can experience, it's usually number two or number three after, you know, death of a spouse. Death of a loved one, yeah. Yeah, that is, that's the number one. And usually divorce is number two. So it's the death of a marriage, right? It's it's the I, death I, of our- Last time I looked, living. I think it was death of a loved one, moving and then divorce. But the problem is that most people who are getting divorced end up moving. So should it really be number three then? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very good point. That is In a fact, very good point. If you put the two together, maybe they trump death of a loved one, but that's a whole nother argument. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, you know, you've got all of this stress of the event itself. And then you have purely the math, right? If we're looking at divorce, what this means is we are dividing the resources, we're dividing the assets, but we're multiplying the expenses. So we used to have one household, now we're splitting it into two. So this means we have two rent payments or two mortgages. We have two sets of groceries. We have two sets of utilities. Oh, let's not forget the big expense, two sets of tax returns. Yes, we've got tax returns. I mean, plus you have to pay the attorneys. And so just the simple math of it, it forces people to look at their finances. And a lot of my clients are higher income, higher net worth. And they may have been able to not micromanage their finances and not have to look super close at things because they always had an abundance of income, right? So once divorce comes, that's no longer an option. They really have to dig in and see, am I going to be okay? Am I overspending? Especially if it's the spouse that didn't handle the finances, which in a lot of cases, the women that I'm coaching, you know, they may be coming out of divorce with a decent amount of support, uh, you know, for a certain period of years, or they may be coming, you know, with a certain amount of assets, but they don't know if it's going to be enough mm -hmm. because essentially they allowed their spouse to have the relationship with money. I love to tell married couples that, you know, when you're married, money's like the third person in your relationship. Usually you're both interacting with money and in a healthy marriage, both of you are talking to money, helping to take care of money. You know, if you want to think of like money as your child, right? Like we're, we're co-parenting money here. But when you exit the marriage, 
money comes with you and you and money are going to be together forever. So if you allowed your spouse to handle money 100% of the time, then you feel like all of a sudden you're living with this stranger called money and you don't know what to do with him or her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that can feel scary if you don't know how to relate to money. And then you've got all this emotional baggage around the subject that you know might be from childhood or might be from the marriage. And all of a sudden it's like, you've got this big dysfunctional mess and you don't really know what to do with it. Makes sense. Yes. <laughs> Makes sense. And I'm just thinking about some of the statistics, you know, uh, statistically when research is done on this, most couples believe that they do, they say that they do know what's going on with the money. But then when people, when the researchers dig deeper, what they find out is that uh, what is more likely to happen. I, I, now, I'm not sure how this applies to your specific set of people that you work with, uh, is that one person manages the long-term investments and the other person manages the household expenses and neither of them really communicate about it. And so even if people find themselves in a situation where they feel like they are managing money, the chances are they don't have a complete relationship with money. You know, right. as they're describing it. I mean, statistically, that's just, it's very rare that, that that both people are aware of both things. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it is natural for one person to take the lead of handling the day-to-day -day finances. So, for example, since I'm the money person, you know, I pay the bills, I handle a lot of the day-to-day -day things that are going on. But my husband and I have regular conversations about what's going on. He has access to look at all of the accounts and look at all of the spending whenever he wants to. And, you know, when it comes to investing, both of us have a relationship with our financial planner because, you know, we each have accounts in our names and, you know, both of us have been known to call our financial planner independently of each other. But when we meet, it's like we all meet together because we want to be having these conversations with each other, but also with our financial professionals. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a healthy relationship. Yes. And so um, getting down to the work that you're doing and the, and the book more, mm -hmm. what, when a couple is getting divorced, what's your best advice as they're starting to unravel their finances and reestablish themselves as individuals, or perhaps they've got a a child-centered partnership that that which means there's partial financial contribution right. to the you know to the child's well-being but not not complete partnership yeah well the most important thing that they can do is to be gathering that information so they know what they're dealing with because like you said Many times they may have a handle on a piece of it, but not the whole entire thing. Or they so, might not have a handle on any of it. No, no. <laughs> I, I have a lot of female clients who come to me and that's the case. They've, you know, they don't even know what they have until we start, until we start digging around and we start looking for these things. In fact, one of my clients that I started with just recently during our initial meeting, she thought she only had $5,000 in her 401k for her current company. And just the other day she said, oh, hey, I double checked on my 401k balance and I've actually got $60,000 in there. <laughs> so sometimes you actually find something out that that is a positive, but 
it is very important to start getting a handle on those documents. So, you know, getting copies of bank statements, credit card statements, tax returns, um, well, so investments. Yeah, step one, inventory your financial situation, which your attorney is going to encourage you to do anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or your mediator or whatever, however you're doing it. Yeah. And the other thing that's important too is to establish a checking account or a bank account in your own name. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not for the purposes of being secretive, but you want to start establishing your own accounts because you know things are going to be split eventually and you want to make sure that you've got some place for that to go. And occasionally I will have someone who doesn't have any credit in their own name. So let's say this person is a stay-at-home mom or dad, the other spouse has been working and maybe they're just an authorized user on the other person's account. It's a good idea to get a credit card in your own name, even if you have to get a secured credit card. Yeah. So, and if, if you're listening to this podcast or watching this video blog at this time and you're married and you're thinking about getting divorced, you might want to start doing these things now anyway. I mean, when I work yes. with couples who are uh, thinking about getting divorced, but are trying to establish some kind of communication so that they can figure out what they want to do after they can finally start to resolve conflict without killing each other. Uh, very typically, what I advise them to do is is similar to what you're talking about, to have their individual accounts, wh which is where they keep the money that they are going to spend strictly on themselves and to have their joint account where they're going to manage their shared expenses. And in that way, you know, by doing that, they're never looking over each other's shoulders, worrying about what the other person is spending money on. And they know that the money in the joint account is for joint expenses. You know, having those kind of boundaries is healthy when you're together. And it's certainly healthy when you're coming apart. Absolutely. And, you know, when it comes to relationships, I always tell people it's okay to have separate money, but separate money doesn't mean secret money, right? This is money that we've, we have agreed that each of us has X amount, you know, in the joint account and or in the, in our separate accounts. We're not nitpicking over the details, but it's not because we're trying to keep secrets from you. Secret money in the doors process will get you burned every time. So, yeah. Uh, yes. Sorry. So, number one, assess what you have. Yes. And then number two, make sure that you have your own line of credit, that you have your own bank account. And then what's next? Yeah. So, you know, I think it would be identifying your, what I like to call your money team. So... If you don't have a relationship with the tax person, with your financial planner, because a lot of times it might be your husband's best buddy from college that's your financial planner. Yeah. You may not necessarily feel like you can have an open and honest relationship with that person. Um, you know, in I've I've heard financial planners say that. You know, the best case scenario is that the husband and the wife are fighting over who gets to keep the financial planner. <laughs> but, you know, if if you didn't initiate the relationship with that person, it really is a good idea to have someone who is looking after your best interests. Mm -hmm. And if there are significant assets, it can be very helpful to have a financial planner who is a CDFA, that's a certified divorce financial analyst. Um, and even if you don't just having those financial professionals who have 
experience with divorce. Uh So for example, I'm a certified divorce specialist. What that means is I really just understand the entire process of divorce. I'm, you know, I'm not a legal expert. I'm not a mental health expert, but I understand how all these things work together as someone is moving through divorce. So I think that's important is to identify those, those people that you may need. Um, and the, the two big ones, you know, besides your attorney are typically going to be your tax person and your financial planner. But if you are someone who hasn't managed the day-to-day finances, having a financial coach can be a really huge resource to help you get organized and just set up that plan and have that second set of eyes to be, you know, giving you that advice and that objective direction. Yeah, this relationship with money on an individual level is really an amazing thing to me because it's a mystery to many people. Yes. Uh, and, and it's really, if I were going to lay blame, I would lay blame at the feet of the school system, but ultimately I would lay blame at the feet of parents, except that, you know, generation after generation of parents just don't, hasn't really understood the, how money works, you know, and there, there are basic business principles, really life principles at work here. You know, right. if more is going out than is coming in, you have a problem, you know, right. yes. <laughs> like it's, but, but uh, you know, but I mean, it's amazing how how the school system consistently fails to to give children this this basic understanding of how money works. And, you know, yes. like I said, I'd love to blame the parents, except that for generations, parents have not known this. Right. You know, it's right. it's really um, well, actually. I think since the rise of credit, right? I mean, because back in the day when credit was readily available, you had the money that you made and you handed it over to someone and they put it in different socks. You know, there was the sock <laughs> for the rent. There was the sock for the food. There was the sock for the future. You know, maybe they pay, there was a mattress for the stuff they really wanted to save. You know, right. so it was a lot more tangible then. But mm-hmm. when with the rise of credit, it's like you didn't need the sock anymore because you could just, the money was just available right and somehow when we made that switch as a culture where credit was considered a good thing and desirable and readily available uh the the whole sock system went out and and people (laughs) lost touch with their relationship with money absolutely yes and banks have done an excellent job marketing their product because people are grateful when someone extends them credit so i always say like you know, if you would think about like, hey, if you're a business owner and you went to the front door and there was like a line of people out to the street, you'd be like, wow, you know, and they're begging you for their product. We do that with banks. We beg them to give us a car loan. We beg them to give us a credit card. So they they, used to beg us to put our money in them. I know. (laughs) And now they charge us to hold our money. I know it's very interesting. Yeah. But, you know, there is that whole emotional component. And I always, I like to relate it to food because people really get this. So when you think about your relationship with food, there's the nutrition piece, but there's also the emotional piece, right? You know, when you think about your grandma's homemade chocolate chip cookies, right? Like those calories feel different to you because there's an emotional attachment to them. 
And it's the same thing with your finances. And that's why I really get frustrated with financial professionals who tell their clients, just leave emotion out of it and make the logical decision. Because they're really asking people to do something that's impossible. Science has proven that the moment of decision happens in the same part of our brain that processes emotion. So we, we can't take it out completely. But what we can do is we can, we can understand how our emotions affect our behavior. And we can also learn how to regulate our emotions so that we don't make important financial decisions at the height of emotion. So I like to say that's a, that's a whole nother podcast right there. By, yes. the, by the by the way, Christine. <laughs> All right, part two coming soon. <laughs> no, I mean seriously, this whole thing. Uh, the science doesn't just show it's the same part of our brain that's emotion. The, the stu study of buying shows that people buy mm -hmm. emotionally and rationalize secondarily. Yes. And so, yeah, I'm with you 100. percent The more in touch yeah. we are with our emotions, particularly in heightened emotion states. You know, the yes. more we want to watch out for what's happening there, what are we buying into and why? And I think the thing about money is that unlike food, right? Like you got to eat, right. right? But money is strictly symbolic, right? You know, it's, and because it's strictly symbolic, it, it's, there's so much more, even more attached to it than my mom's chocolate chip, grandma's chocolate chip cookie. Though right. I've got to tell you, you said that and I, I was like, chocolate. Yeah, I've got an attachment to that. I totally feel that, you know. <laughs> Me too. Uh, yeah. Me too. <laughs> um, you know, the, the question that I ask everyone as we get to the end of the show is what is the legacy? Of the Oh, but I, before you answer that question, Christine, I have I've cheated people of the opportunity to find you. Christine, oh, yes. how can they find you? <laughs> yeah, so if they go to my website, it's my name, christinelucan.com. Um, or if they're looking specifically for the book, they can go to financialdignityafterdivorce.com and there's a link right there to take you to Amazon to buy the book. And there's awesome. a free workbook uh, that goes along with it that you can download from the website as well. And how's the workbook going to help them? So the really, workbook, let's plot this out. Yes. Yeah, so pretty much at the end of every chapter, there are questions to consider and action items. So this is a very action oriented book. Um, this basically has room for you to respond to those questions, to, um, to do those various activities that are going to help you to do the, the tangible financial checklist type things, but also uh -huh. to unravel that relationship with money so that you can rebuild it in a way that serves you. That's awesome. Future. Yeah. That's awesome. And here, let me share my own experience of workbooks. So if you're like me, what you're gonna to wanna to do folks is read the book and go back and do the exercises later. You'll never go back and do the exercises later. Don't do that. <laughs> because if, if you're like me, you'll never go back and do them later. So take the time, you know, I, I, like I would say carve out uh, a little time out of each day or uh, uh, a day or two a week where you're gonna dedicate 45 minutes to this and be prepared to read another book while you're doing the workbook, but do the workbook as, as a, an, a for, like, like going to the gym. Like you wanna take a workbook and do it as gym time, two or three times a week until you get to the end. And actually, if you, it, when you do it that way, 
with any workbook, not just Christine's, mm -hmm. you're going to find that your whole focus on whatever the subject matter is going to shift and change. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Reading the workbook and doing the exercise later almost never works. Yes. Well, and people have a tendency to love my books because they're short chapters. So they're not super long chapters. You can you could probably get through, you know, two or three chapters plus the workbook exercises, you know, in a half an hour. And what's the, the uh, pretending that your workbook is a people changing factory? Who are they going into the workbook and who are they coming out the other end? I love that question. So coming into the workbook, um, they're bringing a lot of anxiety, a lot of disorganization, um, and probably a lot of fear around, am I going to be okay? Coming out of the workbook, they are going to feel positive about their finances. They're going to feel peaceful and they're going to be organized, nice. which is important. You know, that question was generated by someone who just finished writing a workbook. By the way. <laughs> so I, I knew that was a good one. And I'm glad it worked for you. All right. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I tried to give you the hook prematurely. Okay. The question I ask everyone at the end of the podcast is, what is the legacy you want to leave behind? The, I'm, it's the financial dignity. I mean, financial dignity for everyone. I mean, that's really what my goal is and what my mission is. I want everyone to wake up in the morning just feeling good about their money, you know, to not be under that burden of shame and embarrassment and, and stress around their money. And that looks different for everybody, you know, depending on their particular situation. But I feel like this needs, you know, the financial information, it doesn't just need to be accessible to everyone, but that emotional intelligence piece to me is extremely important. Sweet. I love that. I was just, I'm just imagining what it would be like, you know, if you're in India and you're waking up feeling okay about money. Yeah. Or, you know, Zimbabwe or somewhere, somewhere, not America. Yeah. Uh, and folks, if you missed the link for the book or how to find Christine, don't worry, it'll be in the notes. You know, we always make sure that our folks are accessible and reachable. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Such a pleasure. Hey, thanks for having me. I loved, uh, loved being here. <laughs>